everybody, welcome to The New Deal. This is episode three of the New Deal series on the student loan crisis. Today we're gonna be talking about the economic factors that helped to catalyze the student loan crisis. And we're also gonna be taking a look at how those factors have impacted borrowers through and since the student loan crisis. But before we get into that, if you like The New Deal here on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button below. I would appreciate it. You can also find The New Deal on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can go to thenewdeal.com and check out the blog. You can also find the podcast episodes and the YouTube videos there. And if you want, head over to Twitch, find The New Deal on Twitch, and soon I'll be streaming uh, games with politics or live streaming episode recording so you can you know check out you know advanced copies of the episodes essentially over on Twitch. Uh, if you're listening today, thank you for listening on the podcast. You can find the New Deal podcast on your podcast provider of choice. Please like the podcast, rate the podcast, give me some some feedback on what you think uh, I could improve on or what, what you think I'm doing well. I would appreciate that. Anything that I present digitally on the screen for the listeners today, I will be describing in the best detail I can to make sure that you are not missing out on any of the content in the episode, even though you don't have the visual in front of you. Uh, so. I promise to do that. I think I messed up once in the last episode. Um, so let's get into it. Um, this episode is gonna set us up for the next few. So we've covered student loan basics and, and the crisis basics. Uh, last episode, we looked at student loan stigmas. Uh, today, we're looking at the economic factors, and this is episode three. The whole episode is called The Perfect Storm. Uh, this is part one, economic factors. Part two is going to be predatory lending because predatory lending and economic factors are intrinsically linked when we're talking about this crisis. Episode four is gonna take a look at the fallout of the student loan crisis, who it affected, how it affected them, how it affected the economy, um, other things that it affected that maybe we didn't really think about or haven't thought about. In episode five, we're gonna take a look at the student loan forgiveness programs and whether or not we should pursue them. 10,000 in forgiveness, 50,000 in forgiveness is a good idea at all. Uh, we're gonna kind of explore that topic and then episode six, we're gonna recap the whole series. We're gonna make it nice and neat and hopefully by that point, uh, I've, I've done a decent enough job in conveying information about the student loan crisis that maybe it's changed your mind or at least provide a new perspective for you, um, which is the goal of this series. So before we get into new stuff, uh, we're gonna get some uh, administrative stuff out of the way real quick, just a little bit of recap. $1.7 trillion in student loan debt in America compared to 1.4 trillion in auto debt or 9.15 billion in credit debt or 9.86 trillion in mortgage debt. However, if you think about all the mortgages in America, student loan debt is equivalent to over 20% of that number, not a small number just to put things in perspective. The class of 2019, 65% of students uh, took out loans for attending school in, in 2019. The average debt uh, that they took out uh, or, or accrued was $30,000. And 14% of their parents took loans for them. Uh, and those loans averaged $37,000. So these aren't just students that we're talking about. One thing I haven't addressed in the first two episodes very much is private loans. So there's $132 billion in private loans um, owed in America. 91% of undergrad and 62% of graduate private loans were co-signed, which means that the student did not have enough credit for the bank to trust them, and they needed someone who was credit worthy to sign on to the application, which also means that that person is responsible for the loan as well. We're growing. 
the number of people who are affected by this crisis. Finally, 16% uh, of loans um, for the class of 2019 were private student loans. And historically, private loans have had interest rates as high as 12.45%, which is essentially a credit card interest rate, which is absurd. We'll get into that with predatory lending. Uh, real quick, some, some loan terms, definitions, and school terms and definitions. When we're talking about loan repayment, if you are in, this, in, in these statuses, this is what it means. If you're in school, you're in school. You don't have to pay. Uh, they basically say, hey, focus on your studies. You know, get us back later. After school, you get a six-month grace period. You're in a grace period. Uh, basically, time for you to move where you're going to move and start your job and save some money so you can start paying your loans back. And then you enter active repayment where you're repaying your loans. And then we've got kind of the, the negative terms or the, the areas where we would delay payment, right? So the first is deferment. Deferment is when your loans can be delayed because maybe you're participating in, in, in an activity or, or a program that exempts you from paying the loan back. For instance, if you join the military, uh, your loans can be deferred. If you go back to school, your loans can be deferred. Um, so that's where deferment might be granted. And the second, the flip side of deferment is forbearance. And that's where your loans can be delayed, but this is because you've encountered a hardship. Either you can't pay the loans or you've lost your job or you've suffered an injury or you're disabled. That's when they'll grant you forbearance. And then finally, the worst word is default. If you default on your loan, that means that you have not been able to pay your loan. And, and the time periods for the default you know, change, um, but I believe you know, for most public loans, I think if you don't pay in nine months, you'll go into default. If you're going to default, they can do something called wage garnishment, where the loan company essentially just takes money out of your paycheck or they take your whole tax refund. Not fun. So not good to default on your loans, but I just wanted to go through those terms. Um, three more terms I wanted to get through just because of when I was researching, I hadn't heard them put this way. We have public nonprofit schools, and these are schools that are funded by the government. These are state schools. Um, in Rhode Island, this would be Rhode Island College and CCRI. Um, other states, you know, maybe UConn um, or UMass, those are state schools. Then we have private nonprofit schools, and I just haven't thought about these schools in a, in, in a nonprofit way, but th this is Harvard and Yale and, and any of the other private schools that we typically talk about, they are classified as private nonprofit. And that distinction is important because we also have for-profit schools. And for-profit schools are expensive. Uh, they basically admit they admit a very high high amount of people. They, if if you apply, they basically accept you. Um, tuition and fees are used for more than just bettering education. They use they're used for profit. And these are these are schools like Kaplan or University of Phoenix or Capella. You see the advertisements on TV for profit schools. Keep those terms in mind as we move forward. So, economic factors. Who's in trouble right now? Uh, who's who are the people who are in trouble? Um, for students who attended for-profit schools, so we're talking about University of Phoenix, Capella, Kaplan, the default rate within five years of them graduating, for people who graduated with an associate's, 41% of those people will default in the first five years. For people who got a four-year degree from a for-profit school, 33% of those with a bachelor's will default on their loan 
from a for-profit school. That's compared to 27% who go to community college, 14% who go to a public four-year school, and then 13% who go to a private school. So basically, if you go to a for-profit school, your chances of defaulting are through the roof and we'll get into it with predatory lending because there is some collusion. The average payment for student loans in general is about $300 per month. Uh, I also want to touch on racial inequity for a minute. Uh, black students are, as with many things in America, disproportionately affected by student loans. Black students with four-year degrees default 21% of the time compared to 4% of white students. Among college grads who began school in 2003 and 2004, um, 35% were black compared to 12% white um, who, were, who defaulted. So the numbers came up, but disproportionately affected black people. I'm going to put an image up right here. So what we're looking at is the average student, le student loan debt by age group, and we've got a chart here. And basically, this is just to show who who owes the money. So if you're 24 and under, there are 8.5 million borrowers in that bracket, collectively owing one point, uh, sorry, 125 billion. Then we've got 25 to 34. Uh, there's 15.2 million borrowers in this category, and they owe about 500 billion. And then you've got 35 to 49, that's 14 million borrowers about the same as the group below, and they owe $550 billion, so just a little bit more. Then you've got ages 50 to 61, it's about $6 million. They owe $220 billion. And then age 62 and up, there's $1.9 million of them who still have student loans, and they owe $65 billion. One thing I want to point out here is that when we're looking at 24 and younger, 25 to 34, and 35 to 49, we are talking primarily about millennials. Millennials were born 1981 to 1996. Uh, they are now ages 22 to 38 years old, and they are the generation that has been most heavily affected by this crisis. And I say that because when we start talking about the fallout, the millennials are gonna be a focal point for, for that topic. Uh, we have COVID, we're in a COVID recession. Um, prior to COVID, I mean, it's important to distinguish because of the um, relief program. Prior to COVID, $355 billion of the $1.7 trillion um, in debt was either in deferment, forbearance, or in default, which is 20% of all debt was in a essentially negative or non-repayment state. Uh, and that included 10 million borrowers, and there are 44 million total borrowers. So it's important to realize that that's, th these are big numbers. That's, that's a large amount of money that is not currently being paid back. COVID came along and the government said, wait a minute, no one has to pay their federal loans anymore. You're all going into forbearance. You can continue to pay. Just give us a call. Say you want to keep paying. However, 88% of those loans are still in forbearance. Only 14% are in repayment. And this is important because when we come out of COVID, those people are going to have to start paying their loans back and unemployment is way up and 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 the economy isn't great and hiring isn't great. So that that's another thing to look, look out for moving forward. One of the first economic factors, the biggest, that, that had an effect even before you, you took out your loan was tuition increases um, at the schools. Um, since 1975, and I'm going to put this graphic up, and this is from 
an article in the New York Times Magazine uh, that was extremely informative. Um, student loan, sorry, student tuition at private schools is up 300% since 1975, and at public schools is up 400%, and this far outpaces inflation. And you can see on this chart here that um, actually public schools have gone, have gone up a little bit more. Um, and you can see on the chart that even though private schools are worth more, they haven't actually raised their prices as much as public schools. This is largely due to capitalism. Um, education is not the only product that universities have. The students are a product. When you know, students are looking at schools, they say, well, who graduated from that school? What are they doing now? How much do they make? The students are the product. So that means that the colleges have to attract freshmen who have a high potential for becoming a really good, you know, example, a really good product that the college has produced so that they continue to bring in high quality students. And this is problematic because over the last, you know, since, since 1975, the governments have really reined back their funding of public schools. Um, much like when cuts need to be made at a high school and they cut the arts program, when it's time for the government to find money or to save on the budget or to you know have to pay something, one of the first things that gets, gets cut is post-secondary education. So what that means is there, these public schools aren't getting enough funding from the government, which means that the tuition costs have to go up to make up for it. And it is a endless cycle of price increases. And then the private schools, they're in competition. They need to continue to provide a high level of competitive education. So their prices continue to rise because the more they spend on each student, the better education they provide, the more likely they are to attract new students. So tuition has skyrocketed. That's a huge factor even prior to anyone taking out a loan. The second is wage stagnation. And we touched a little bit on this uh, in the past episodes, and I brought this up yesterday. In 1968, if you take into account inflation, minimum wage was today's $12.02. So in 1968, the minimum wage they made was equal to $12.02 today. Our minimum wage today is $7.25. So someone in 1968 is actually making actually made 30% more money, had more buying power than anyone on minimum wage today, which means wages have not come up much. It also means that the dollar doesn't have as much buying power, which means that even though we might be making more money, it's not really worth more money. It's not getting us any more money. And that's problematic because as we've seen, the tuition prices go up, but if wages aren't coming up, you can't keep up. So college begins to get more and more out of grasp for a lot of Americans, especially middle-class Americans. Um, I'm going to, uh, if you look right here, and I'm just gonna you know, throw this up, this is the living wage calculator from MIT. And uh, I've put it down in the links. If you wanna go check it out, you can type in your state or um, your, your um, you know, city, and it will tell you how much money uh, you need to make in your state in order to survive there. And it takes into account how many kids or how many people in the household are working, your salaries, you know, based on things like 
And then it takes factors into account like um, healthcare, childcare, food, housing, transportation, taxes, uh, civic engagement, um, things like that. So, so I would just go check out that calculator for, for some perspective when we're talking about minimum wage or minimum livable wage. Here are some combined numbers to consider between tuition and, and wage increase. And this is from that New York Times Magazine article um, from 2015 by Adam Davidson. So in 1974, the average family uh, in America earned just over 13,000 per year. Uh, a new home could be purchased for an average of 13,000, sorry, $36,000, 36,000, um, about three times your annual salary. Um, an average new car was $4,400. Um, attending a four-year private college cost $2,000 a year, which was affordable even for people, you know, middle class or middle class. If you, if you, you know, really worked for it, you could, you could go to private school. And public universities were $510 a year, a quarter of the public universities. In, in today's perspective, the average median household income is $62,000 today. The, but an average home costs 174,000. That's up 66% in relation to salary uh, since uh, 1974. Um, a new car, they're about even actually. So cars, good job, auto industry, we're not, we're, we're right on track there. Um, attending a private four-year college is up 300% compared to your annual salary. So it's 300 times harder essentially to get into private university. Um, and it's 400% harder to get into public university because Public university is $2,500 compared to the 510 from 1975. What this means is that without financial aid, most Americans can't go to school. It is out of reach for most Americans to pay out of pocket. This is why so many people take loans. One other thing that is worth noting that's little known, the government regulates how much money can be taken out and, and, and by who. Um, for federal student loans. In 1992, Congress eliminated the income limits um, on who can borrow uh, from the government and, and also lifted the ceiling on the amount. And then in 2006, they removed the limits on how much grad students could borrow. So they took the cap off. So, hey, you can borrow as much as, as you need to, um, which maybe isn't great if those people can't afford to pay back those large larger numbers. And then finally, before you took out the loan, well, depends on when you took out the loan, uh, we've got the recessions. Um, we've got the Great Recession 2008. We had employment at 10%. We've now got the COVID recession, where in 2020, the unemployment went to 13%. Um, it's currently sitting at 6.3%, and 11 million people are unemployed in America right now. And I mentioned yesterday, between, let me get this right, between December 2007 and May of 2016, the unemployment rate never dropped below 5%. And right now we're sitting at 6.3 for comparison. So we're right back in that 2007 to 2016 time period where stuff was not good. The, the last thing that you, know, you, you might've known, actually you wouldn't have known this. Um, so you take out your loan, right? You might've known some of those things before. You know that you're in a recession or maybe you could have known that wages went up or, or tuition went up or that you know, inflation hadn't kept up with wages. But now you're saddled with the loan. You can't make the payments. Uh, you couldn't get a job you know, for whatever reason. Something I think a lot of people might not know is that traditionally, student loans cannot be included in bankruptcy. And 
there are some caveats here, but this means that if you file for bankruptcy because you can't afford other debts, student loans won't be included. And, and so I'm going to put this up on the screen, the screen here. Um, here's a graphic, and I'm going to read the entire thing for the people listening. Chapter 7 Bankruptcy. Here we go. Chapter 7 Bankruptcy, also known as straight bankruptcy, is what most people probably think of when they're considering filing for bankruptcy. Under this type of bankruptcy, you'll be required to allow a federal court trustee to supervise the sale of any assets that aren't exempt. So cars, work-related tools, basic household furnishings may be exempt, which means that you, you get to keep those. Um, money from the sale of the other goods goes toward paying your creditors. Um, the balance of what you owe is then eliminated after the bankruptcy is discharged. And here we go. Chapter 7 bankruptcy can't get you out of certain kind of debts. You'll still have to pay court-ordered alimony, child support, and student loans. Student loans are on the same level as child support and alimony when it comes to bankruptcy. You are stuck with your student loan, historically. Now, I did find some hopeful information. Apparently, the way that the federal bankruptcy student loan you know, language was written by Congress is extremely vague. And basically, um, it says that if you can prove undue hardship, prove being the key word here, if you can prove undue hardship, you may be allowed to include student loan debt in bankruptcy. However, this was not traditionally done and it's completely subjective. So it ultimately comes down to which judge you get to determine whether or not that loan would be included. And for the most part, judges would not include it. But that's slowly been changing as this crisis has been going along. The barriers, however, is that you need to pay for bankruptcy and it costs extra to prove undue hardship for student loans. So you already can't afford your student loans. Now you're paying for bankruptcy and then you have to pay to get you know, to prove undue hardship. That's a barrier and a lot of people just don't do it. They just stick with the loan because they can't afford the extra money in bankruptcy. Um, and there's some talk about changing the language in Congress so that maybe after seven years, bankruptcy uh, student loans will be considered like any other debt. If you have your, your loan for seven years, it can be discharged through bankruptcy as well. Um, but historically and currently, Student loan debt is not easy to include in a bankruptcy. You're stuck with it. Um, financial education. We don't get a lot of financial education in school. I, I took my loans out as a 17-year-old. I didn't know much about forbearance and deferment and compound interest and capitalized interest and, and, and the time frames. And I didn't have a great grasp on how much I'd be making all that. That didn't matter because the world changed uh, from the time I entered college to the time I graduated. Um, but one of the most stunning figures is that 37% of students in 2018 did not fill out their FAFSA. FAFSA is your free application for federal student aid, which means that they applied to go to college and they didn't even fill out the paperwork, the free paperwork to potentially get government student aid. And they're taking out private loans. There's a, there's, there's a catch-22 here. A lot of people say, well, you know, maybe people shouldn't go to college, um, but there's, there are still very clear benefits. College grads average 30000 more per year in salary than people with a high school diploma. Over the course of a lifetime, people with a college degree, bachelors, will earn a million dollars more in their lifetime than someone with a high school diploma. 
Someone with an associate's degree will earn $300,000 more in a lifetime than someone with a high school diploma. Those are, those are, you know, substantial numbers. But, but, 32% of employers, right now, 32% of employers are increasing their education requirements for new hires. 27% of employers are recruiting people who hold a master's degree into positions that previously only required a bachelor's. They're saying, oh, nope, bachelor's isn't good enough anymore. Now we need a bachelor's. 27%, 37% of companies are now requiring a, requiring a bachelor's degree for jobs where no degree was needed previously. So before high school diploma, you're good to go. Not anymore. 37% of companies are now requiring bachelor degrees for those positions. I'm going to put up this graphic before I, before I wrap that point up. Um, this is the impact of higher education on the job. This is the logical, the, this is the reasoning behind why companies are asking for higher education. Companies find that someone with a degree produces 57% higher quality work, that they're 48% more productive, that their communication is 38% better, that their in innovation and idea generation is 37% better, that their retention rate is higher, they're more likely to stay with the co company, and they generate more revenue. College grads, according to this chart, will generate 21% more revenue than someone who doesn't have a degree or an advanced degree, depending on what, what echelon we're talking here. So let's think about what we've covered in this episode. Most Americans can't afford to go to school without a loan. Local governments aren't funding post-secondary education and private schools um, are competing for students because capitalism, and so prices are going up and wage, wages have been stagnant since the 70s. And on top of that, education needed for employment is increasing. Um, with some entry-level jobs now requiring a master's. Entry-level. So Americans can't afford college. And college is getting more expensive. And Americans aren't making more money. But society requires you now more than ever to have an advanced education, to have a bachelor's, to have a master's degree. There's a gap opening up. And this is part of the income gap that's talked about so much on the news. The people who can afford it get into these jobs. The people can afford it get the degree, they get the jobs, they get the companies more money, they get the retention, and the people who can't afford it start to lose out. And that gap is going to widen. Keep an eye on that. Um, employers are beginning to offer student loan assistance as part of their benefits package. That's how widespread this problem is. Companies realize that, hey, if we offer this person, if we offer to help pay this person's loans, loans back, they will choose us over another company. And so companies are doing this because so many people have student loans. It's a big problem. So again, just for perspective. So I want to take a second to focus on the people. Who are these people? Who are the people who are strapped with debt, who, who aren't able to to, to make purchases, who, who aren't making enough money, who, who could benefit from something like loan forgiveness. And I talked about millennials earlier, so we'll, we'll stay with millennials. 
the average millennial, and remember, we're talking about ages like 25 to 38 or, or something like that. The average millennial's net worth is $8,000. 8000 net worth. Average millennial between 25 and 38. So all Americans 25 to 38, the average net worth is $8,000. That's a 34% decrease from 1996 for the same age group. They average a salary of $35,000 per year. This, like half, half of the workforce we're talking, 35,000 is the average salary for this age group. And millennials have, on average, less than $5,000 in their bank account. Their net worth is averaging $8,000. They have less than $5,000 in their bank account, and they average $35,000 a year, which is just over a poverty wage, just over half the workforce. We need this perspective. We need to understand when we talk about millennials, we're talking about nearly half the workforce. And these are, this is their lives. This is our lives. This is, this is our reality. Net worth $8,000 on average. Think about what that would mean for renting or buying a house. Or, we'll get to it in our episode about the fallout. So I just wanted to end on that point today. Um, because there's a lot more to talk about. And, and I want to start hitting on some of the human, um, the human components of this crisis, which we'll do through predatory lending and we'll do through the fallout episode, the next two episodes. So if you liked what you heard today, please hit the subscribe button below. If you're listening on podcasts, like the podcast, rate the podcast. Part two of this episode, uh, The Perfect Storm, will come out tomorrow, and that's going to be all about predatory lending. Buckle up for that one, because I feel like that's the information most people don't have and most people need to hear. So like, subscribe, follow The New Deal. Thank you so much for listening and following along in this series. I'll catch you in the next episode. Have a good one.